Welcome to the Simply Financial Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Calandra. This is episode number 32 of season number four. So my guest today is Andrew Opdyke. Uh, He is an economist at First Trust Advisors. He is a chartered financial analyst or CFA. And I'm really, really excited for the chance to talk to him given all that's happening in the United States, the economy, the markets, the pandemic, there's just so much going on. And he spends all day, every day thinking about these things. So Drew, I appreciate you spending some time with me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So if it's okay, maybe we could just, I'm so excited about this. I'm not even going to ease into things. Maybe we could just jump in and talk about the gross domestic product or GDP. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had a Q1 where U.S. GDP was down, I think, 4.8% annualized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we had the worst quarter ever, negative 32.9%. Yep. So what do you make of that? Yeah. So it has been, it's been a a rough start to the year, to say the least. It's been historically bad. Um, It it was, the second quarter was the largest single quarter decline that we've seen in the the post-World War II era. And And it is by kind of a, a, a magnitude. I mean, before this, the largest single quarter decline was a 10% annualized decline back in 1958. So, you know, it's, it's one of these numbers here in the second quarter, we knew it was going to be bad, yes. right? We all lived through April, we lived through May, uh, and we saw things starting to reopen. But even as we got through May, as we got to June, as the reopening was happening, there were so many areas that were still running at, at you know, uh, less than full capacity and running at less than half capacity. So, you know, it it was a question of, was it going to be down 15%? Was it going to be down 50%? And it kind of came down in the middle. But here's, here's one of the things that as I look at the second quarter, you know, I, I, one of the major questions is where do we go from here? And and to put this in a little historical context, that 10% number that I mentioned, the largest single quarter decline in the post-World War II era up to this point was also related to a pandemic. That back in 1958 was the Asian flu, and the Asian flu, it it killed 116,000 people here in the United States, uh, which back then the population was roughly half the size that it is today. That's the equivalent as today's percent of population, about 230,000 Americans, and and it killed over a million people internationally. Now, they they didn't do the shutdowns. They didn't do the shelter in place on a national scale. There were certainly industries, cities, towns, communities that were impacted like we've seen today. But, but one of the things that we saw coming out of 1958 is that it, largely what happened was there was delays in activity. It's not necessarily that uh, actions that were going to take place went away forever, but business that would have taken place in 1958 maybe took place in 1959 or took place in 1960. And we've started to see that as, as we emerged in May, June, July, and now into August, we've seen things like auto sales. And we've seen things like like housing sales and and purchases from consumers are now starting to take place when they couldn't before. And back in 1958, they emerged with relatively strong growth over the next year, year and a half. And I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that again happen now. I think that it was a terrible quarter and we're growing uh, from a, 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 a large drawdown, but we are certainly back into growth mode. All right. So that... I like the optimism there. That's a hopeful tone related to the historical precedent of 1958. 
why don't I, I got a couple of things I, I'd like to ask, but what is um, your outlook for Q3 and or Q4? Or does the recession, because we're officially in a recession now with the two negative quarters in a row and the, yep. the longest economic growth period ever in U.S. history that started back in, what, 2009, 2010? Mm-hmm. So, 2000, yep. so do we get a third negative quarter? No, I don't think so. I mean, so, so, so think about it this way. And, and April was the worst quarter of the second quarter, and then it improved into May, it improved into June. Now we know the data, we know a lot of the data from July, so we know it improved into July. But even if we had stopped at June, and we had stayed completely flat at the June levels, June levels over three months, uh, three months of June production would be better than what we saw in Q2, because we would be beating April, we would be beating May. So, So even if we saw no growth after the second quarter, the GDP number would ultimately tick higher. Now, what we've seen is there was a little bit of headwind in late June into July, as we saw uh, Florida, Arizona, Texas, California with their rising cases. But even during that, we continue to see the data progress uh, a little bit higher. The pace slowed a little bit. Now that we've seen those states turning the corner and we see the cases once again moving lower, it looks like the remainder of August and into September are going to see strong growth. My expectation right now is that Q3 GDP is going to come in at, at, at around a positive 15% uh, at an annualized rate. I think it's going to move a little bit lower into Q4, somewhere around 5%, and it will probably run around that 5% in, in 2021. Now, to, to put that number in a little perspective, 5% growth, since 2005, we haven't seen 3% real growth. So this is, this is a, an accelerated pace. Again, it's a makeup on some sure. of that activity. And barring some major event that pulls us backwards, uh, a, so, and it would have to have a significant pull backwards, I think we're going to continue to see growth over what we, where we were at in Q2. All right. So this will be as largely advertised, a short, short deep, powerful recession that only lasts two quarters. Then yeah, and, and, yeah, realistically, I mean, if you look at the data, one of the best indicators on, on when we've seen a turn on the GDP standpoint is when we see the turn on employment data. And we started to see the, the turn on the employment data in May. It turned in May. We started to see it rise higher. It continued in June. It continued in, in, in July. The NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, that's the official determiner of recession dates. That's who sets it for the records that all of us economists use. They said that the recession started essentially in February. I'm going to guess that they'll mark it as late April, early May is the end of the recession. So it was the deepest recession, the sharpest decline we've seen uh, in in the economy in the post-World War II era, but it will go on the record books as the shortest recession that we've seen over that time frame as well. So you said earlier that the second quarter's number was really, really bad, worst in history, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was expected. Yeah. And one of the things that surprised me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that I know everybody expected it, and it was very predictable given what was happening. It still surprises me, though, how the markets just mm-hmm. shrugged it off so nonchalantly. I know the market is forward-looking. I know there's cause for optimism. I get all of that. However, I struggle with just how easily it shrugged off the worst quarter ever, 
especially because there is a lot of uncertainty and it's not clear what's going to happen with the pandemic and as states struggle to open, reopen, there's still a mm-hmm. lot that has to play out. Does it surprise you how nonchalant the market has been about the second quarter? So, so here's how I viewed what took place with the market and, and this, you know, uh, kind of apparent disconnect between the market movement and, and the economic movement. We saw the market start to decline back in February. Now, this was before we saw any stay-at-home orders, before we saw any shelter in place, before we saw really any es- escalation of COVID here in the United States. But at that point in time, the models and the discussions were largely coming from the medical community, and they said, hey, if this makes it to U.S. shores, and it will probably make it to U.S. shores, we could see 100, 200 million people in the U.S. contract the coronavirus. And if we don't take action, we could see two to seven million Americans die from this virus. So we, we were hearing these numbers, and, and we were seeing the, the, what, what took place in China, and we were seeing things at that point. We were looking at what was taking place in Italy, and we were seeing these mortalities and, and, and cases growing at an exponential rate. And so we started to see the market decline in the face of this wall of worry, this, this fear that was overwhelming as we stared into the abyss that stood before us. Now, it continued declining in the beginning part of March. And then as we got into mid-March, this is when the shelter in place and the stay-at-home orders were going into effect. And it, March 23rd was the date when the, when the, the markets ultimately bottomed. But it, it, it was also a point in time where we were starting to see some of the data emerge here, and we were seeing a, a slower pace of growth or a slower outbreak in activity. And was, as we saw that, that states were taking action, we were beginning to realize that those worst-case scenarios were looking increasingly unlikely to occur. We knew these shelter-in-place, the stay-at-home orders, would have a short-term impact uh, on, on the economy, and ultimately that would impact earnings and revenues for companies. But if you think about the difference that, that, that comes from, you know, two to seven million people ultimately passing to, you know, today we're looking at the number may end up being 200,000, which is certainly a tragic number, but it's an exponential difference from what we were expecting. And those loss of lives, you know, that was going to impact productivity and GDP and earnings and revenues for years to come. And so we saw that this was looking to be increasingly concentrated. Now, as we started to get deeper into it, as we started to emerge in, in later March into April, we started to see our numbers slowing down in those first wave states and starting to turn. And we saw how, and this is, this is one of the most amazing things in U.S. history, okay, to me, is that when, when our, our backs are against the wall, the U.S. gets creative. Right? We've seen this in past world wars. We've seen this with prior ec- e- epidemics. And, and we started to see things happening. We started to see the private sector get involved with testing. We started to see companies like Ford and GM start producing uh, respirators. They changed their lines over. We started to hear about alcohol production companies that were changing their lines to, to produce hand sanitizers. We started to see this action taking place and this fight as a community, both pu- public and private, and I think the markets looked at it and said, okay, this is probably not going to be and almost certainly will not be as bad as we initially thought it would be. So the markets started to rise. And then what we started to notice was that, you know, the heaviest impact from the shelters and the stay at home was hitting Main Street. Okay. It was hitting the mom and pop shops, the, right. the small, uh, medium-sized businesses that we walk past as we're walking through our towns. But as the doors closed outside, our activity moved inside and online, 
And a lot of these market-based companies that are large, incredibly large companies with national distribution, with national reach, they started to see that, you know, hey, all of a sudden there's a heavy demand for healthcare, right? We all need to fight. We need the PPE. We need the resources. We need the spending. Everybody's working on cures. There is going to be activity there. And all of a sudden we need the spending on, on remote access and cloud computing and cybersecurity. And all of a sudden you can't go to the hardware store down the street. So what do you do? You go online and you find out who can reach you where you're at. And we, we started to see that the market-based companies were better positioned in this environment. And frankly, they were taking market share from the mom and pop shops. So as we started to see that they were feeling less of an impact, it became clear that at the end of the day, you don't invest in GDP. You invest in a portion of the economy that tends to be the fast growing side of the economy. And it became clear that the markets were going to come back faster. Those companies were going to weather this storm better than the economy as a whole. Mom and pop, Main Street, it's going to take them longer to recover. It, it's going to take uh, through the end of 21, 2021 into the end of 2022 to get back to where we were from an employment standpoint, from a GDP standpoint, but the market is going to come back sooner. And I think you price in bad news, you price in, in, in some cases, worst case scenarios, and as those worst case scenarios start to look increasingly unlikely and the worst case ends up looking a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better, I think the market's ultimately moved with that. I don't know if I would say they shrugged it off. Um, I think it took us a while to understand how pieces were going to play out. And it was smoother, certainly, than I think most people expected. But when we start digging into the details, I mean, if you dig into the markets, the, the hotels, the, the cruise lines, the department stores, uh, the restaurants and bars that, that are publicly traded companies have been absolutely hammered. But they, they make up such a small part of the market right. that's right. dominated by tech, healthcare, communication services, consumer discretionaries. And that, that's, that's those companies that we've all shifted to in this environment. And I think the realization that it, the mix of companies and the mix of, of sectors and industries that are represented in the markets versus the economy helps explain why they've moved, not just now, but historically in, in declines and rises, why they move at a different speed. All right. Very good. So switching gears slightly, let's, let's address the pandemic. Uh, we're recording yeah. this in mid-August 2020. So there's a lot of good news out there. There's yep. some bad news. There's mm -hmm. also a lot of, how do I say it gently? I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I think there's a lot of biased information out there. So yep. uh, in, in your view, where do you think we are in terms of the pandemic? Talk a little bit about, you know, the caseload, the testing, where we are with mm -hmm. the mortality rates. Um, give us some of your thoughts. So, so what have we seen so far, right? We saw the first wave and we can call them first wave, second wave. It, it ends up being kind of a semantics thing. We saw the outbreaks in the Northeast, right? New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Ultimately, we saw it a little bit here where I'm talking to you from in the Midwest. I'm, I'm talking to you from right outside Chicago. We saw it show up here in Illinois. Now, one of the difficulties that we had in the early stages in trying to figure out how many people had the virus, how many cases did we truly see, one of the problems was that our testing capacity was incredibly limited in the early stages. So mid-March to mid-April, we saw that rise in cases in, in those initial states. Um, but we were, we were testing about 100,000 people per day. And 100,000 tests per day is, is not 
a lot of testing capacity when you consider the size of our country, the number of people that we have. So when we were limited on testing, we limited who we tested. We tended to test those with pre-existing conditions, uh, the elderly, those who were most apt to show signs of the virus. And we didn't know back then that there was large portions of the population, the teens, 20s, 30s, 40, 50-year-olds, without pre-existing conditions that were showing uh, fewer signs of having the virus. And in some cases, they were asymptomatic. So when we try to run some comparisons on cases, did we see more cases with, with Florida and California, New York, or uh, I'm sorry, Florida, California, Arizona, and Texas, we certainly caught more. We certainly identified more. Because by the time that we reached that stage in mid-June, we had the capacity to test 500,000 people per day. And soon we were at 600, then we were at 700, then we were at 800,000 tests per day. We were, we were testing at a magnitude higher. So the testing early on maybe wasn't the best gauge of how we were impacted and whether or not the first wave was worse than the second wave in terms of number of cases. We can see in the mortality data that the number of deaths we saw from COVID in that first wave, New York, New Jersey in particular, was significantly higher than what we've seen so far in this second wave, despite the fact that they've got more identified cases. And that can come from a number of different things that are going on. It may be that we just missed so many cases early on and the first wave truly was a lot larger than the second wave, which the second wave was the first wave for these states that hadn't seen it before. But I think there's a couple other things that have been going on that have made this, this conversation, how we look at cases, how we look at testing, how we look at mortalities and, and recovery rates, there's been some stuff that's happened in that in-between phase. One of those is that testing, okay? The, the more testing capacity we had, we started to test deeper into population groups across age groups. We started to learn about these minimal symptom younger demographics, and we said, listen, we need to test them. We need to get into that group because they can still spread even if they're not showing the signs. So let's make sure we're testing them. We also said clearly the elderly population is at higher risk. Their mortality rates, their hospitalization rates are significantly higher than uh, the younger demographics. So we started to test deeper into those groups. And as we tested deeper, similar to, to virtually any disease or virus we see, when we test deeper and we catch earlier, when you catch something earlier in the process, it's easier to treat it. And that may help explain too some of the mortalities, the improvements in that that we've seen over the past one to two months compared to that March and April period. So testing clearly had an impact. The second thing that I think is incredibly important to remember is that the hospitals that, that saw that initial outbreak in March and April, they were to a large degree flying blind. They had no idea really what they would need for PPE, the personal protective right. equipment that they yes. wear. They, they didn't know on ventilators. They didn't know how many ICU beds or emergency room beds or inpatient beds they might need. They didn't know how they could plan to handle and distribute cases as they rose in, in cities or regions uh, or within states. And they battled and, and they did some incredible things. They worked like crazy during that first wave. And as we emerged in, in mid to late April, they started having conversations with the rest of the country, honestly, with the rest of the world. And they started to say, this is what we wish we knew so That's that right. if you experience this now, you're going to be in a far better position. So we had better data. We had better planning from the hospitals. They were better prepared to handle it. We were catching cases earlier. And then the third piece, I think, of this puzzle is, is that we've, we've gotten better at the treatment. We've gotten better at handling 
the cases, even the ones that make it to the point where they need hospitalization. We've seen medical advancements like Gilead's remdesivir. Back in March and April, we were starting to hear some rumblings that they were testing this. This was a malaria treatment, and they were testing it to see if it was effective in improving health outcomes uh, for individuals with COVID. And we didn't know back then, so they were running tests across the country. Eventually, they had enough evidence that it was improving health outcomes that we just started, started to distribute nationally and internationally. Now, here we stand having this conversation, and it's been out there for another two, three months. So they've got more data. And what they found, Gilead came out and made a statement last month saying from their data, from their testing, it's reducing mortalities by around 62% versus the standard of care. And the standard of care, that doesn't mean versus no treatment. That's the best treatment options they knew about before this. This is what they were using in that first wave when they didn't have this new information, these new options available for the treatment. Then we got information on things like steroids. They could help with inflammation. They could help with breathing. We learned simple things like having someone lay on their stomach could, make, uh, could ease some of the pressure on the lungs. So ultimately, these, these, these new things we learn day by day, week by week, month by month, it's compiling, it's growing, it's building together, and it's helping the hospital systems and individuals uh, deal better with the virus from early stages. So I don't know whether we're, 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 we're past the worst of it. I don't know if we'll ever see a recurrence uh, in states that have currently gone past it, but I, I do know that if we do see a pickup anywhere here in the country, that we're, we're going to be in a far better position to fight back than we were back in March and April. And that showed through with this second wave in how the states ultimately uh, could decide on, on their responses. So go back to something you said earlier in terms of testing. And mm -hmm. I'm in Connecticut, so I am in yeah. the Northeast, which is, like you described, one of the early hotspots. We're very tied yeah. in with the uh, New York ecosystem. So early on, young, healthy people were not tested. Unless they were in the healthcare industry, they were yeah. not really tested. Now right. in these new hotspot states, like you mm -hmm. mentioned, Florida, the big four, Florida, Texas, Arizona, and California, you're seeing yeah. more testing and more testing at younger ages, and you're seeing a lot of those individuals test positive. So is yeah. one of your thoughts about this that in Connecticut, young people like me that are under the risk age group, yep. that we may have already had it. And we you just very well in the have. testing. And yeah. it then would really be skewing the numbers we're seeing simply because we weren't tested and we might not get tested now because in Connecticut, the numbers are incredibly low. I think since June 9th, we've averaged less than 200 positive cases a day. So that's yeah. been for over 60 days. And I think the seven day average of deaths with COVID is I think under five. Wow. And that's great news. Yeah, I, I, I do think that's the case. Now, what, what we saw, so, so again, kind of early back in those stages, as we were starting to learn more about the virus, one of the things we learned was that if you had the virus and as you were recovering, your immune system built up these antibodies. I'm sure now at this point, probably everybody's heard about the antibodies, and then they started to do antibody tests. So once they determined that these antibodies were built up in your system if you had the virus, groups started to say, well, why don't we test our populations for the antibodies? Let's see if we can get some, some estimate of how many people in our population are testing positive for the antibodies. We never knew they had the virus, but, but 
they probably did. And so it started actually out in California and Stanford ran a study and then uh, UCLA and, and the, the LA County ran studies. Then New York City ran them and Chelsea, Massachusetts, which was one of the hotspots. And what they found consistently through their testing within their populations is that based on the antibody results, the true number of cases they likely had was 30 to 40 times higher right. than their number of confirmed cases. And, and again, we will never know exactly how much it was, even in the states recently. I mean, it's, it's telling that, that back in New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, the, the average age of someone testing positive was 65 years old. And that was a large reflection of who was being tested. In Florida, as we got into early July, the average age of someone testing positive was 35 years old. It was a younger demographic. And so that tells us that these younger demographics, even if they don't know it, uh, it, because they're asymptomatic or they're showing minimal symptoms, not enough for them to go to a hospital, it That's was correct. clearly spreading through these groups. No, and, I, and in New York City, for example, they, had, they, they were testing, and, and it looked like as much as a quarter of the population of New York City may have ultimately had it. Yeah, no, I had a conversation with somebody recently, and they said, well, what's different now is, they were talking about Florida, because they're in Florida, and you may know mm -hmm. I have an office in Florida and lots of clients there is they mm -hmm. said something like, yeah, what's different now though is young people in Florida are getting it, unlike how it was Chris in the Northeast. And I think that's a, a misinterpretation of what happened. Yeah, yeah. We don't know We're for confirming. sure. Yeah. yeah. We're confirming that young people had it now in the, in the South and in the Southeast. We didn't know then, but, it, but I, I think it's, it's incredibly unlikely that those demographics weren't getting it before. We just didn't have the capacity to identify them. Very good. So let's touch on the media a little bit. And I know this mm -hmm. is a non-economic element, but I'm just curious your thought, and I don't want to delve too much into partisan politics. However, the media sure. is so hyper-focused on number of cases mm -hmm. and they seem to be largely doom and gloom I know the media, is, their job is to magnify things. They want people to watch and tune in and sign in. I, I get their motivation. Yeah. But aren't they prioritizing the wrong thing when they talk about positive cases? In other words, if, if people are getting it, but they're not in the hospital and the death rate is not growing, it's not really the right metric to focus on. And that seems to be where they're spending all of their attention on. Yeah. So, so th I mean, honestly, this is one of the first kind of social media viruses that we've had. I mean, from, right. from day one, as it started to emerge, we all have smartphones or almost everyone has a smartphone. Now um, I use my smartphone. It's, it's, it's my alarm clock in the morning. And from the early stages, I would turn over in the morning and I'd go to turn off my alarm and I'd greeted, by a half dozen to a dozen messages talking about how many new cases we had, how many new deaths we had, what state was starting to see a rise, what country was starting to see a rise, what celebrity had it. I mean, we were inundated in real time with the information on the progress of this virus as it spread. And, and we weren't getting as much information on, on some of the health outcomes. We, we, we weren't as quick to get some of the information on treatments or improvements in the virus, because as you mentioned, um, it, it's, it's kind of a function of how they work. If, if, if you watch uh, the news and they tell you, hey, everything looks great today, 
uh, everything's kind of moving in a positive right. direction. It looks like things are going to be all right. You say, you know what? That's great. Turn off the TV. Go take a walk outside. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your day. But if they say, tune in right after the break, and we're going to tell you about the thing that could, could make this even worse than April. Here's, here's a metric that's now coming out that says the world may be doomed. You stick around afterwards because we are a loss-averse, psychologically, we are loss-averse people. We, we, we feel pain and we feel loss, and we're more nervous about loss than we are about the upside of it. And they, they work off of that. So it's, it's a situation where if, if, you, if you rated the media, and, and this isn't a new thing, this isn't new to COVID. If you rated the media from a financial standpoint, they've called 30 of the last two recessions. There's always been something going back to 2008, 2009. There hasn't been a week that's gone by where you couldn't open up a website or turn on TV and hear about something that was going to throw us into the next recession. And, and so, you know, they play off of the fear. I wish, I wish there was a more of a focus and more of a conversation strictly about the data, because at yes. the end of the day, emotions, emotions can win out in financial markets in the short term. Emotions can drive decision-making, but it's in over the long term, math wins, math wins. And so, that's a lot of the conversations that I've been having, and that's why we spend so much of our time, I, I'll be honest, as an economist and, and working in, in the financial industry, my TV is off for pretty much the entire day. I might turn it on to watch a Fed press conference uh, or, or something like that, but if, if, if we're going to get data on the virus, if we're going to get data on, on what's going on in terms of the health outcomes, I want to get it from the source. I don't want to get the interpretation of it by a media network, by journalists, I want to look at the actual data so that I can analyze it, try to figure out, you know, what's what, because there's so many moving parts. Sure. And it's, it's, it's a more complicated process. It's a more time intensive and energy intensive process. And so I get why it's a lot easier to turn on and say, hey, the news is going to cover what's important today. But, but from a decision making standpoint and a policy standpoint, I think it, it can lead to worse outcomes. Yes, and I think that's been exaggerated during this in terms of the pandemic coverage. Uh, yeah, so let's yeah. jump back into the economics a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. You talked about unemployment and you struck a, a positive tone that a lot of people became unemployed. We wiped out 10 years worth of job gains in just a few months. Uh, we right. wiped down yeah. at what, 3.4, 3.5% unemployment rate. We had yep. more job openings than folks looking for jobs. We had a terrifically strong jobs market. And then yep. just like that, that all went away. Now, I am maybe a little bit less optimistic than you because I think that we've moved in the right direction and a lot of people have gone back to work. But mm -hmm. my concern is that, yes, there's a certain amount of easy ones that go back to work but yep. that the really hard part might be from going from eight to five, not from where were we at the high 17? Yeah. Around. Yeah. Like that. Um, and now we're at 10 and 10.8. Is that what the rate is? Something like that. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that almost seemed like that's the easy part. Like that's the easy bounce back, but how hard, yep. how much resistance are we going to get going from 10 to 11 back to let's say six, seven, which is still pretty good historically. How much resistance yeah. are we gonna get there? Maybe the easy part was done, but the hard part's left to do. What do you think about that thinking? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. The rate's gonna fall the most and the fastest in the early stages. And, and 
as we get deeper into it, I mean, if you have three and a half percent unemployment, getting from three and a half to three percent unemployment is incredibly difficult because there, it, 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 the labor markets are already so tight, so many people are at work, then moving the needle further than that becomes an extremely difficult thing to do. But as you said, moving from 17 to 14 and 14 down to 11 or 11 down to 10, it's easier in the early stages. Now, let's step back and look at what happened, okay? And, and to put some, some perspective on this, if we go back to the 0809 recession, and that was in 2008, 2009, and into 2010, because it ran from January 2008 to February 2010, we, we were consistently losing jobs in the economy. It was 25 months of jobs declines. Now, not the magnitude of what we saw, the speed that we saw with the shelter in place, with the stay-at-home orders, but we saw job declines for 25 consecutive months. Now, during that process, we lost about eight and a half million jobs, 8.7 million jobs. Then we started to grow. Starting in February of 2010 through February of 2020, before the lockdowns, we added a little over 22 and a half million jobs. Now, in, in March and April alone, particularly in April, those two months, just two months, we lost 22 million jobs. In the month of April alone, we lost more than twice as many jobs as we did in the entirety of 0809 and into the beginning of 2010. It was an incredible, historically bad, I mean, I, I pray we never see another report like that in our lifetimes. And I think there's a good chance that we don't. Barring some major catastrophic event, that was an incredible move. Now we've brought back almost half of those jobs, 9.3 million. And there was heavy impacts in certain areas like, like restaurants and bars. That was five and a half, that was a quarter of the jobs lost. We focus particularly on, on the claims data, initial claims, continuing claims, um, in part because we get those every week. Every Thursday, we get to take the pulse of the employment market and we get to see, are more people losing jobs? Because we had, remember the PPP, the, the payment, Paycheck Protection Program for small and medium-sized businesses that we had months back. And there was concerns as that money runs out and businesses try to get back on their feet under their own will, and, and under their own financial resources, are we going to see additional bankruptcies? Are we going to see additional closures? This data is the best way to check that. And what we've seen on this data, it, it went through a bit of a rough patch as we started to see some of the restaurant and bar shutdowns in this phase two when we had California and, and Texas and Florida, because those are massive economies. They are a large portion of employment in the U.S. as well as GDP in the U.S., but as they've kind of turned the corner, we've seen a return back to that growth, and, and we continue to trend in a positive direction with employment. It was V-shaped in the early stage of the employment recovery. Now it's going to start to even off a little bit. We will not grow at that same pace. My best guess right now is it's probably going to be 2023, so two and a half, three years from now, before we get back to 4%, 5% unemployment. A lot of the jobs we need to, to replace are those, those jobs we lost on Main Street. The mom and pop shop, we've had you know, tens of thousands of restaurants shut down. Eventually, new businesses will come and fill those spots. But it takes time. It yes. takes time to get them back, to hire, to get people comfortable investing their personal capital to try to rebuild a business. I think we will get there, but we have a road ahead of us. Very good. Let's talk a little bit about um, corporate earnings. Is that all right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's just focus on the S&P 500. I know that's a, a common benchmark. The, the market is bigger than that, of course. 
But uh, can you talk a little bit about where you think we are with S&P 500 earnings? I know you mentioned earlier that that index has done very well in this recovery, but it's right. lumpy. There's a few companies that have had a tremendous impact and make the index look better than it would look if you treated all 500 equally, which I know is theoretical. Uh, sure. But it's not like all 500 companies are doing very well. There's some sectors that have not participated much, if at all, in the recovery, and then yeah. others have powerfully led the way. So where do you think we are in terms of corporate earnings? Clearly the expectation for this year, we're not gonna earn as much on the S&P 500 as originally predicted. No, no, yeah. I mean, coming into this year, and, and even through January and February, because the beginning of this year, pre-COVID, from an economic perspective, from a GDP perspective, we were growing at about 3% real GDP rate, which if that had continued throughout this year, we were on track for the best year for economic growth since 2005. And the market outlook suggested that we were going to see solid returns for earnings, for revenues, uh, and, and for earnings per share for the markets. Now, the estimates, I was taking a look at them a little bit earlier today. The second quarter is what we're still getting the data in on. And companies have come in better than expected, but better than really terrible numbers. So aggregate earnings um, are down right now about 10% here in the second quarter. I think we will start to see them turn a little bit in the second half of this year in Q3 and Q4. But as you mentioned, I mean, it has been a very different direction that things have moved. Healthcare uh, is, has, their earnings are up. Infotech, the, the infotech space, they've been relatively flat. Areas like communication services are down, but not nearly as much. Energy has been hammered, right? Uh, the financials have been hammered. So certain sectors, they felt the impact heavier. And my expectation is that we move, as we move further, especially if we get something, if we get a vaccine and we start seeing a return and we get this confidence that things are returning back towards normal, I think we're going to see some more investment. We're going to see, for example, in areas like financials, the big hit they took to earnings was in loan loss reserves. Their expectation for defaults that are gonna come into the future. And the sooner we get progress on something like a vaccine, a confirmation, I think it's gonna improve their outlook. And whether that's in 2021, because earnings will be down for the year. Right. Overall earnings will be down for the year. But as I look at the Bloomberg estimates, the Bloomberg analyst estimates for 2021, their expectation are that we're gonna kind of be back to where we were at the end of 2021. And then from there, as we look at 2022 and 2023, the expectations are that the markets, that earnings and revenues are going to continue to move higher. So the earnings side, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to come back in the next roughly 12 to 18 months. What I think is not getting as much focus is that on the, on the flip side, people are looking at the earnings. And we all know that interest rates are incredibly low, right? The Fed, and, and we can talk about the Fed, the Fed cut rates down to zero. That means that the U.S. can borrow incredibly cheap. It also means that businesses, many businesses have been able to issue debt, publicly traded companies issue debt at low levels. They've been working on their balance sheets. They've been kind of shoring them up as they went through this storm. And in some cases, they've been borrowing at these low rates because they know that as we emerge from this, they're going to have opportunities to invest, to grow, to maybe to buy up some of these companies or assets from some of these companies that didn't weather the storm as well. And so I think that lower cost of capital the lower cost of investment for businesses paired with revenues, uh, sales, the earnings numbers coming back puts them in a, in a relatively strong position 
as we look two, three, four years out. So before I ask this question, just to confirm something I think you said, is that mm -hmm. the expectation is by the end of 2021, the S&P will be back to earning what we thought it would earn in 2020. Clearly, it's not going to get there in 20, but should be able to get to what was originally expected for 20 by the end of 21. Is that right? Uh, so, so by 2021, we'll be back from an EPS to where we were at at the end of 2019. Okay. All right. And is it more difficult when you talk about earnings forecast as an economist and as a market watcher, is it more difficult, you think, to forecast earnings? Is it trickier given the pandemic and the uneven shutdowns and openings and layered on top of that is changing consumer behavior and what our politicians are going to do in terms of stimulus and tax policy? Is it harder to project what the earnings are going to be given everything that's going on? It does. It, it creates volatility. And it's, it's created, it's already caused a bit of a shift in our expectations on where some spending was going to occur. Businesses have clearly said we need to prioritize investment in things like cybersecurity and things like cloud computing so that our people, if needed, can work from uh, home or work remotely if needed to in the future. That's going to shift funding, business investment from where it may have otherwise gone. That means certain industries are gonna grow a little faster. Certain industries are gonna grow a little bit slower. There's still a lot of questions about the health of consumers and customer bases. If your customer base, if you are a, you know, a, a food distribu distribution company and your base was restaurants uh, around the country, clearly your outlook has changed significantly and there's a lot of uncertainty that exists there. And I, I think the uncertainty is going to remain. It's more so in certain sectors than right. others. There's certain sectors where we get a better idea of what the spending is going to look like because they have to kind of think that out and they have to budget that a year, two, three years in advance because some projects take longer. But yeah, it, it is harder. I, th I would guess if you, if you went to most analysts today and said, how confident are you on your forecast of 2021, 2022 and beyond? Their, their, their confidence levels are lower than when they were leaving 2019 and coming into 2020 or coming from 2018 into 2019. So there is certainly the possibility that some of this could move to the downside, but there's also possibility they can move to the upside. And our data has been beating expectations of late. And so I think that that beat to the upside is also a very distinct possibility. And that causes even more optimism, right? Some of that pessimism yeah. maybe from the media being a little too gloomy that if you if you beat expectations that helps grow consumer confidence and optimism so that's that's an encouraging thing andrew that's uh, all we have time for for this episode but listeners he and i will continue the conversation on the next episode we're going to talk about several things including all the actions of the federal reserve and the federal government whether the positive aspects of what has been done, as well as some things to watch and maybe we worried about down the line, given some really remarkable activity by the Federal Reserve. We're also going to talk about the upcoming presidential election and what that means for the economy and the markets. Please go to ElliotWealth.com if you want to get more information about me and my team here as we try and help our clients win with money and make smart financial decisions. You can sign up for a complimentary consultation at the website. And I always ask, because it's so very important, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast already, please do so. 
thank you very much. I'll be back with you on the next episode, which will include the conclusion of my conversation with Drew uh, very soon. Thank you and have a great day. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of SagePoint Financial Incorporated and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can assure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Please note the information being provided is strictly as a courtesy. When you link to any of the websites provided here, you are leaving this website. We make no representation as to the completeness or accuracy of the information provided at these websites, nor is the company liable for any direct or indirect technical or system issues or any consequences arising out of your access to your use of third-party technologies websites, information, and programs made available through this website. When you access one of these websites, you are leaving our website and assume total responsibility and risk for your use of the websites you are linking to. Securities and advisory services are offered through SagePoint Financial Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC, insurance services offered through Elliott Wealth Management, LLC, not affiliated with SagePoint Financial.